Canterbury Tales, Chapter 8, Braston Stoat. One of the rules Elaine and I made at Warwick's Farm is that all our creatures, which on last count included 40 breeds from 20 species, have to be relatively easy to handle and have kind natures. This makes life easy and pleasant for us and safe for our visitors and guests. When I say our creatures, I mean the animals and birds that are here because we arrange it so and not and do not include the large variety of animals that make their own decisions where they want to be. I am, of course, referring to the wild animal. Many guests ask how we deal with the likes of foxes and wolves and snakes, and we take delight in advising them that, fortunately, New Zealand being an island, there's no natural predators like these. This, however, does not let us off the hook completely, as there are a whole host of introduced nasty little creatures who come to stay from time to time. Stoats and weasels, along with wild cats and rats, give us the most grief if we let our guard down. Poultry Lane, which is home to most of our rare-breed chickens, with over 20 various-sized and designed chicken coops, is like a shopping mall for these unpleasant visitors. I have visions of them going window shopping while they case the various joints after dark when all is quiet. They stay well hidden during the day for a number of reasons. If they were to attack something, the whole of Poultry Lane would erupt in a cacophony of clucking and doodle-doing, bringing angry-faced humans running. If they were more discreet about such an attack, the ever-watchful eye of the guinea fowl would let out a raucously loud alarm, warning the off-duty guinea fowl of possible danger and alerting the rest of the world in the process. Also, the large and slightly fearsome-looking Sebastopol geese enjoy a bit of sport and a good chase and are always up for a bit of fun. And it arises and a stoat, rat and even a cat would fit the bill. I'm pleased to say that over the years we haven't had too many problems with these predators and that is because we are very wary of them and keep our animal residents in as secure surroundings as possible. Another contributing factor is the fact that I never want to deal with the mass carnage I discovered one bright sunny spring morning in our earlier days at Warwick's farm. Having let out Nicky the dog, taken the covers off the guinea pig hutches, replaced the rabbit's overnight water consumption, I then went to let the ducks out of their apartment and finally arrived at the pigeon loft. The pigeon loft is where our flight of over a dozen white fantail pigeons spend their nights. It's what Elaine refers to as a dilapidated eyesore, but what I prefer to consider a rather rustic wooden structure in need of refurbishment. My first warning that things were not as they should be was when I opened the hatch to the short landing pad that pigeons use for taking off on their day's adventures and landing back on for some rest and recreation in the evenings. The closable landing pad was designed to keep these beautiful birds safe from harm during their slumbers. It was odd that there were not at least a couple of pigeons ready to greet the day and waiting on the landing pad doing their pre-flight checks as I approached. The reason became obvious as I surveyed the scene of carnage with the wire netting fronted. The floor of the loft was littered with the bodies of these lovely creatures. As the saying goes, if you have animals, you have death. And we had come to terms that living this closely with nature, the cycle of life and death was all part of the rhythm of nature, even the occasional untimely death. However, to see such beautiful creatures, and so many of them with scarlet splotches around their necks, all lying dead, and virtually untouched was a shock to the system. It had to be stoats, I decided. Dirty, rotten, little nasty bastards that kill for the sheer joy of it. Injecting their evil yellow fangs into the delicate feathery necks of our pigeons, and watching their life drain away before killing another one and then another. If there is any animal parallel to humankind's sociopathic psychopath, it has to be the stoat. Killing for pleasure rather than hunger, clutching their prey in a vice-like grip, and using their sharp surgical teeth. I felt sick to the stomach, and very angry as I began reverently 
collecting the corpses for quick disposal before anyone else had to witness this tragedy. On investigation, we discovered a small, perfectly round hole in the ground not far from the pigeon loft, which I presumed had to be a stoat hole, as it was obvious that tunnelling in had to be the only way they could have got into the loft. I don't noticed any likely spot that they had got in through, though when I placed a large collection of heavy river stones around the base of the loft the day before. A tunnel set back from the loft was the obvious means of entry, and now we had discovered it. My immediate thought, in mind of restorative justice, was to pour a liberal amount of petrol into the tunnel and toss in the match. One very satisfying woof, and the perpetrator, stroke perpetrators, would be toast, and vengeance would be mine. Elaine quickly reminded me of the dangers of instant retribution and the smouldering, smoky remains of the loft that would probably ensue, not to mention our animal-loving conservational credentials. Left by drowning then, I decided, striding off to fetch a hose. Unfortunately, the hose was about two hose lengths short of the nearest water tap, so I then went off to get a couple of buckets, large ones. Fortunately, this delay allowed me to calm down some and start thinking a bit more rationally. If I tried to flood them out, I decided, then, that there had to be more than a lone ranger. They may just manage to surf their way out to the end of the tunnel, such devious and cunning little lowlifes and lived to kill another day. I decided that I'd better cut off their escape route and forensically going over the crime scene like a seasoned detective, I located the other end of the tunnel inside the loft, which I secured with a very solid rock. The first dozen or so bucket loads of water that descended down the hole that was about the size of a large walnut were quite satisfying, even enjoyable as I imagined the little sicko creatures scrambling for their lives against the flood of water. By the fortieth bucket of water, the afternoon was getting longer, and my chores were calling me, but I gritted my teeth in grim determination. I'd invested too much time, water and emotion to give up now. By the sixtieth bucket, rather than drowning stoats, I was drowning out little voices in my head saying, Chris, give it up buddy, you're becoming a little obsessive here, you have animals to feed and it's getting dark, by imagining just how big this tunnel really was. I truly believe that we had stumbled onto the underground network of a stoat terrorist cell. This was not a tunnel, but surely a series of tunnels, probably in the process of being dug under many of the chicken coops. It probably had little hollows built into it for resting and nesting, and probably birthing, and more, more of these little nasties. With the sun starting to set, and surrounded by a crowd of onlooking hungry free-range chickens and ducks, the water cascading from the 83rd bucket started to gurgle back at me from the hole. After a few moments, seeing if the hole was merely suffering from indigestion, or was in fact now full, I was relieved to see the water level remain constant at ground level. Gotcha, you little bastards! I sung out in delight as a few close-by chooks leapt into the air in fright. My theory that it was indeed a network of tunnels was confirmed a little later, while feeding the chooks along Poultry Lane, when I noticed another damp hole behind one of the chook houses where my deluge had exited. Nervously I looked around, hoping not to find a swampy patch that I had perhaps been watering all afternoon. No, it was all good. Operation Stoat had been a complete success, as was officially confirmed in due course, as we had no more fatalities of the evil stoat variety. I am pleased to report that most of our wild animals tend to give us the light rather than cause temporary mental derangement. One of the more unusual encounters occurred one morning when Bruce decided to feed out some hay to the alpacas in order to give the family staying with us for a couple of days from Hong Kong a nice experience and photo opportunity. 
I enjoyed them, noticing how entranced the guests were watching these beautiful, and at that time of year, heavily fleeced animals gently tucking into a bonus breakfast. Bruce was slowly wheeling his broken hay bale, laden wheelbarrow, along the race, breaking off slices and throwing it across the fence to the patiently waiting alpacas. The hay was gracefully gliding through the air when suddenly this little round greyish lump fell from it and landed on the ground. A second later, hidden by the newly laden hay, blended hay. Not noticing, as he reached for another slice, Bruce repeated the procedure, and we all watched in amazement, as this time another greyish lump fell to the ground. A moment later, also covered in hay. Click, click, went the cameras, and the beaming-faced father of the family began to ask me about the additive that was being fed along with the hay. I grabbed Bruce's arm as, we reached, as he reached for another slice, and then we gently opened up the bale to discover, to everyone's surprise, four newly-born hedgehogs. Gently retrieving the recently airborne ones, who appeared relatively unscathed and probably thought that they had been born a rather ugly species of bird, we reunited the postnatal package into their nest of hay and returned it to the hay barn, intrigued guests in tow to hopefully also reunite them with Ma Hedgehog. Unfortunately, she had obviously thought her maternal duties had concluded and had made off to parts unknown. We checked every 30 minutes for a couple of hours to see if she had returned, but alas, she had not, leaving us with somewhat of a dilemma. Well, I know we shouldn't interfere with Mother Nature, I said with a sigh to Elaine, but, well, we accidentally have, and so really we need to try and fix it. I continued looking at the six little creatures nestling in the boulder straw. I wouldn't call them exactly cute, but they were so tiny I could fit two of them into the palm of my hand, and so vulnerable looking with their little pixie faces, pink bellies and soft spiny quills all over their backs. I've checked it out online, and I think could be on a hiding to nothing. Many have tried, and few have succeeded, she advised me. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, I said, with more confidence than I felt. And it'd be hard to just abandon them now to a hungry or violent death. Hey, look, I continued. I think this one just smiled at me. Pointing at the one I had lying on its back in the palm of my hand, all four legs wide as if waiting for a cuddle. Oh, well, I hope you know what you're taking on, Elaine said, returning to her monitor for more information. Every six hours over the next two days we were busy me in the early hours of darkness, mixing various milk formulas, patiently syringing it down their tiny throats. We then had to palpate all six of their little bellies after each feed until they successfully did their sticky little bits of business. They brought back memories of the kids when they were small and messy. Unfortunately, probably due to a lack of colostrum from their runaway mother, they slowly after the second day passed on, one after another, leaving us both sad but also enriched. By a wonderful experience, few people are lucky enough to enjoy. We are sure our guests from Hong Kong enjoyed going home with the most unique experience to share with their friends. I was just pleased that they were not staying with us and observing Operation Stoat at its most manic stages when we were dealing with a creature at the other end of the vulnerability range.